Lots of kiddos today. Well, it is good to be back with you again today. Um, I had the privilege of spending this week, Tuesday through Thursday, down in Austin at a worship conference with James, Eva, Lyles, and Mars. And uh, it was a great time being together, and we got to hear from many different people um, who desire to see the Lord glorified and, and worshiped. And uh, we had a great time, and I, I love the city of Austin. It's a, it's a, a dear place to me. I, I had the privilege of going to college down there. But it is nice to be back home with my wife and my daughter and, of course, with you guys as well. There's nowhere I would rather be today. Throughout the world today, there are many Christians who are persecuted for their faith. And it's not something we think about often. It's not something that we really see a whole lot of uh, as far as news coverage or things like that. You know, from time to time we do. But there are many of our brothers and sisters who live in places where it is not safe to claim the name of Christ and they suffer, they are persecuted for it. Um, One example of that is a Pakistani Christian woman named Shafia. I'm probably botching that name, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it. Well, she, uh, Shafia's story of persecution began when her brother Rafi stood up for Christians in their community. He publicly confronted some Muslims who were tor- tormented Christian, tormenting Christian young women in their village and was later murdered for it. And in order to bring the accused to trial in their, in, their, uh, in their village, they had to fund, her family had to fund the prosecution themselves. And after paying for part of the trial, when they ran out of money, they were in desperate need for help. And one, one man named Masood, who seemed like their knight in shining armor, promised to help the family and, and help them with their case and fund it. But what they soon found out is he was, he was less than honest and he forged Shafia's signature on a marriage certificate, making her his wife. Thankfully, some of the village leaders saw that as something that was, was wrong and they pressured him to sign a divorce agreement But unfortunately, he was very angry, and soon after, he kidnapped Shafia, and holding her captive, he would violate her and beat her every night. And during this time, Shafia prayed to God constantly, reciting memorized psalms such as Psalm 23, Psalm 120, and 121, and she just clinged to the hope that God would deliver her soon. Masood promised to stop torturing Shafia if she would renounce Christianity and convert to Islam, but she refused, faithfully clinging to Christ. What would become of her? How would her story end? When we hear stories like this, it should ask us, like, what are we supposed to do with that? I mean, how do we understand these horrible things like this that happen? I mean, it, it just seems so strange that, that some of the most faithful 
believers on the earth go through some of the most difficult persecution and suffering. And it doesn't seem fair that God would allow this kind of stuff to happen. This morning I want to I want to look at 1 Peter 3:13 through 4, 6, chapter 4, verse 6, because I think it, it provides us with some insight into what, how we can at least cling to some sense of goodness of the Lord in these kinds of situations, how we can understand unjust suffering, and secondly, really, how we can endure it as believers. And that's the, the two questions I want to wrestle with as we look at, at this passage is how can you understand unjust suffering and how can you endure unjust suffering? So if you have a Bible, flip with me to 1 Peter 3.13 and we're going to stand here in a moment and read that together. But before we do, I want to pray. God, there, there are not a lot of topics in, in, in Scripture or topics to preach on that are, that are more heavy than this. And, and so, Lord, we just ask that you would direct our time today, that you would, um, by your word, direct us to yourself. Uh, Lord, we need to, to hear from you today. We need to be with you. And I, I just ask that you, would, um, that you would come and be with us this morning, that you would use your word to illumine our hearts and our minds, that you would, you would speak to us this morning. We need that desperately. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me as we read this. So this is 1 Peter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revel your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than, to, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that, they, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Thank you. You may be seated. So this passage is, is chock full with a lot of deep, weighty 
some of it confusing stuff. And you could probably spend three or four weeks on it. I have one week. And so we're going to kind of have to move through it rather quickly. But I want to first talk about the question I raised earlier. How can we understand unjust suffering? I mean, what, how do we begin to even make some sense of that? And I think Peter begins to, to help us out by specifying that the kind of suffering that he's addressing here is a specific kind. In verse 14, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. So as, as we look at these verses, I want us to remember that he's talking about not just suffering that is a result of living in a fallen world generally or suffering due to one's own sinful choices, but rather quite the opposite of, of that. It's suffering for doing good. Suffering that is the result of obedience to Christ. And I, if you're like me, you, you probably have some of, somewhat of a problem with this on some level. You know, because I think, for me, I, I'm very addicted to comfort and safety. These are values of mine that, that I cling to. And so it's really unsettling for me to think that obedience to Jesus would sometimes lead me not, not away from suffering, but right headlong into it. And I, and, but Peter says here that some suffering is actually because of righteousness. And I think when we're, when we're confused about that, like whenever I you know, sense that in myself, the question I have to begin, or you know, need to ask myself is, do I have a right understanding of what it is to follow Jesus? Do I have a clear understanding of what it is to, to obey him, for him to be my Lord? And I, th I think I don't understand the call of Jesus a lot of times. When he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, he really meant that. It's not just some call for this special group of elite Christians, but a call for all of us. A call to die to ourselves, and suffering is a part of dying. But Peter moves on. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And he's echoing the beatitude where Jesus says, Blessed are you if you suffer for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And so, how is suffering a blessing? I think really in two ways. When we, suffering for righteousness' sake. First of all, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, we are identifying with Christ and there is a closeness to God that we receive in that while we're here on the earth. So, so as far as here and now, I think that's the, the first blessing. But secondly, we receive rewards in heaven for eternity that will far outweigh any comfort or, or safety or things that we might have here in spite, you know, on, the, on the other side of that. But Peter, he says to, the, to, the, to his readers, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. They were people going through persecution. They were people living in a society that was at odds with their faith. And this is what he had to say to them. And, and I, I can't help but think of the words of Isaiah 43, which we, we read and we sung earlier. And I think his message to them really is, he wants them to remember that they don't have to be afraid because they belong to God, that God is with them, and that he's not going to abandon them. And, and one of the things I think that the Lord really was, was communicating to me this week as I was planning to, to preach is that a lot of times we want to avoid suffering and we think that our greatest need is to be safe or to be 
comfortable, but our greatest need is not the absence of suffering. Our greatest need is the presence of God. And the reason I think he has set it up to where sometimes obeying him and suffering for righteousness' sake, I think the reason, his point and his purpose in that is that in our, uh, in our suffering, we experience his presence more than we do when we're not suffering. That's why he allows it to happen. So we don't need to be free from suffering. We need God. We need him with us. And Peter goes on in verses 15 and 16, the famous apologetics verse that we've been referring to during our Truth and Love series, instructing us to always be prepared to tell of the hope that we have in Jesus, to be able to defend that. Because suffering for righteousness is one of the greatest testimonies of the worth and glory of Christ. And it's really interesting how some of these countries, like Pakistan, the gospel just explodes in the midst of these horrible, horrible things that happen because the people that are watching see that there's obviously something real about a faith, something real about a God that people will lay their lives down for. And then Peter makes this really strong statement in verse 17. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why is that true? That's true because those who suffer for righteousness will be delivered at the end of their earthly life, but those who suffer for doing evil will suffer for eternity, separated from God. And so really the, the, the difference between the two is suffering for righteousness' sake has an expiration date, whereas suffering for sin doesn't. It's, it, it goes on forever. I think the first thing that, that helps us understand unjust suffering is that suffering unjustly for righteousness now is better than suffering justly for sin forever. Suffering unjustly, unjustly for righteousness now is better than suffering justly for sin forever. And verses 18 through 22, Peter kind of switches gears and he begins to talk about Christ and his own suffering. It says there, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So Christ, the perfectly righteous, sinless one, suffered in our place, the unrighteous. And it, and it says in the second part of that verse that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Christ's suffering in our place brought us to God. It, it made possible our reconciliation. And while Christ died in the body, he was raised in the spirit. And this, this is important for us to, to pay attention to. Because what God did to Christ is the pattern of what he does for us as believers who believe in Christ. So if God was faithful to raise Christ from the dead, he is faithful to raise us from the dead. And if God is able to use the suffering of our Savior to bring life and to bring healing to an entire throng of people throughout eternity that same God is able to use our own suffering for good to bring life and healing to others as well. And then in verses 19 through 22, we have some of the most confusing verses in all of the scripture. And I'm not going to pretend to think that I can explain this or to 
to, to give the most compelling argument for it, but I want to look at verses 19 and 20 first. It says, In which he went, so being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. There's a lot of views on this. We don't have time to walk through them all and every little piece of the argument. But I do want to at least address this. Um, Here's what I believe he's talking about here. My view is that Christ, upon his resurrection and his ascension to heaven, went to the evil spirits who were being kept in, in prison. I believe they were supernatural beings who were active, when it talks about Noah, this time of Noah, they were active in Noah's time in stirring up evil on the earth. And I believe that while it's unclear where that prison may be, it could possibly be in one of the levels of heaven. In, in the, the, the Jewish literature that he's referring to, they believed that. And so most likely that is, is what he's talking about here, is that Christ, upon his resurrection and ascension, went to go and preach to these evil spirits, proclaiming to them that they have been defeated by his death and resurrection. And I, and I think the point of that here for Peter's readers is this. Why, why would he kind of go into this confusing verse? Is that the same evil spirits that are at work in their own persecution and suffering have already been defeated and Christ has already proclaimed that his victory over them. And so they can know that the ones that are tormenting them are already defeated by their Savior. But then in verses 21 and 22, Peter says another couple, couple things that, that are, are a little bit unclear when you first read them as well. He says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjective to him. So on on first read, you might think that this is teaching that baptism is what saves us, that the act of being baptized is, is somehow salvific. But that's not what he's saying. He says, first of all, that it's not a removal of dirt from the body. It doesn't wash our sins away. It doesn't make us clean. And he says, but as an appeal of, to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think that's the key phrase here. So his point is not that baptism saves, but that baptism is a testimony of the fact that they have been saved by Christ's resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is what saves, and baptism is an outward symbol of us identifying with Christ's own death and resurrection by faith. I think his point really is that you've already taken a public stand for Christ, so continue to follow him publicly, continue to be faithful to him, even though you're going through these difficult times. And then in verse 22, he says that Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And this is kind of what I, like, I think it's kind of similar to that point he was making earlier when he said about going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison. He wants them to know that Christ's resurrection, death and resurrection, was the thing that secured his victory over all evil forces. And it spells it out here. Angels, authorities, and powers. 
they don't need to be afraid of the persecution that they're facing because those evil forces have been defeated. And they can look back, you know, back to this time of Noah where God rescued eight people out of all these people on the earth, this small number of people, and they can trust that the same God who saved those eight people will save them, this relatively small group of people living in this larger society that is opposed to the gospel and opposed to their faith. And that, that same truth applies to us. When we go through suffering or when we're slandered for our faith, we can rest assured that the same God will save us. He will not abandon us. We will be raised with Christ too. And that's the second thing that we can understand about unjust suffering is that our Savior's suffering subdued all and it secured our salvation. Our Savior's suffering subdued all and it secured our salvation. So we've talked about this first question of how can you understand unjust suffering, but what about that second question I mentioned? How can you endure unjust suffering? This is really, this is really important for, for Peter's reader, readers, and I think it's important for us as well. He said, I, I think really through these last verse, verses in, four, in chapter 4, the 1 through 6, there are three things that, that I see here that help to endure when you're going through persecution for faith. First of all, to set your mind on the Savior. Set your mind on the Savior. And he writes in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In order to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, we have to be thinking first of our Savior. We have to be thinking of Christ and set our mind on Him. We have to remember that He, was, he, was, he suffered Himself but he has conquered all unjust suffering through his death and resurrection. And it does not have the final say. But how did Jesus think? How, did he, how was he able to remain faithful to the Father all the way to the cross? He knew that his Father was with him and that he was strong enough, powerful enough to bring him back from the dead. And he knew that the Father would use his sacrifice to reconcile those who were lost back to him. It really comes down to trusting the Father that he will be faithful to you, that he will not abandon you. So first, set your mind on the Savior. And then secondly, the second thing I see here is deem yourself dead to sin. Or you could say it a different way, decide that you are dead to sin. And Peter writes this, he says, down in, where is this at? Yeah, still, still there in verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And his point here is not that those who are suffering in the flesh have, are now sinless, that they're, they're never going to sin again, but that their suffering for righteousness reveals that they have made a break with their sinful past, that they have decided that they are dead to sin. They're showing with their lives that Jesus is worth more to them than the comforts and the conveniences of selfishly pursuing their own desires. And then look at verse 3. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It says, no matter how long, you were before you, how long you lived before you came to Christ, 
that time that you had living in sin was enough. Whether that was two years, 12 years, or 25 years, that's enough. And, and if you're going to suffer for righteousness' sake, you have to break with your sinful past, deciding that you are dead to sin. Believing that what Paul teaches us in Romans 6, as we read, that we were crucified with Christ and our sin was buried with him, and that we have been raised to life, to live for God. In order to endure, endure unjust suffering, you have to come to a place where you choose to believe that sin has no power over you and you are done with it. And the final thing I see here is that if you want to endure unjust suffering, you have to fearlessly face the future. Fearlessly face the future. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So we don't have to be afraid when we're going through tough times. We don't have to be afraid as we look towards the future because we can know that Christ, our righteous judge, is going to make all things right in the end. He will bring those who persecute and malign us to justice. They will not escape his wrath, and therefore we don't have to be afraid. We can rest assured that God will vindicate us and that unjust suffering will be completely punished by our Savior. And look at verse 6. This is another verse that's kind of strange. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the same way, spirit the, the way God does. Some people read this verse and they think that that means that there's a second chance at salvation beyond the grave. You've probably heard somebody that believes this. But that's not Peter's point. His point is not that the gospel is still available to people after they died. His point is that the gospel was preached to those who are dead before they died, and that those saints had come to faith while on the earth, and as a result, though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So his point is not that there's this second offering of salvation, but these people came to faith before they died, and they will be raised with Christ because of their faith, that they will live with him. And so like them, we don't have to fear our future. We don't have to be afraid because we know that we are alive in Christ and he will raise us with our Savior. So I, I didn't finish Shafia's story. I wanted to tell you to hold off the second half till after we walk through the sermon today. But about four months after she was kidnapped, her captor... Masood forgot to lock the door to the room that he had her captive in. And she escaped and made her way back home to her family. And though they were reunited, they were, found themselves in another desperate situation. Because, as I mentioned earlier, in order to bring somebody to trial, you had to raise the money for the prosecution. They now had to raise the funds to... to, to prosecute against Masood, and they had to borrow $217 to file a case against him. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot of money to us, 
But in order to pay back that loan, her family, which they didn't have it, the, uh, all 11 of her family members had to work 12 hours a day, earning only, uh, or sorry, they, they, they borrowed the $217 from a brick kiln owner. And so they, all 11 family members had to work 12 hours a day, earning only $3 for every 1,000 bricks that they made. While working in the factory, grueling, you know, going through this, this horrible labor on the heels of this horrible, horrible um, torture that she experienced for four months, Shafia was reading the Bible and she came across the passage where God calls us to forgive those who persecute us. And she came to a place where she decided to forgive Masood and the man who had killed her brother. And during this time that her family was working in this brick kiln, the Voice of the Martyrs, which is a, a ministry that really comes to the aid of the persecuted church around the world, they heard of her story and they, they decided that they wanted to get involved and pay off that debt. And so they were able to do that and her family is no longer having to work under those horrible, horrible circumstances. And... Shafia now has plans to become a doctor, and her family, even after all of this, they hold a prayer meeting for their, in their home for friends and family members because they want the people that they know, that they live with, to come to know Jesus because he is precious to them. Now, I, I think that, that when we hear these kinds of stories, it seems so foreign to us because we worship freely in this place. I mean, we don't fear if somebody's going to break down this door and come in with a bunch of M16s. But we have brothers and sisters all around the world that are living in places where they have to whisper and they can't even really sing. They have to sing with a whisper knowing that at any moment their very lives could be at risk just because they claim the name of Jesus and because they follow him. But I just wonder if there's, it seems to me like there, there must be such a richness to the closeness that they have with the Savior as they cling to him through these difficult, difficult times. And I know that that experience is even possible for us because we may not experience some of those same kinds of suffering, but in our own lives we do experience dark, dark days. And when we are faithful to cling to God in those dark times. I know I've experienced personally that he is so good and so near to us when we are troubled, when we are brokenhearted. I just want to leave us with a couple of challenges today as we close. First of all, I want to just challenge each and every one of us to remember our brothers and sisters who are a part of the persecuted church around the world. I want to challenge you to remember to pray for them. And one of the ways that I believe that you can, can stay in touch with what's going on around the world, we, we certainly can't know about every individual person who's going through that, but the Voice of the Martyrs has a website, and they have stories, and they have you know blogs and, and, and prayer request list and different things on there. And I encourage you to, to drop by that site and make it, 
you know, a habit in your, in your walk of faith to stand by our persecuted brothers and sisters. The name of their website is, is persecution.com, pretty easy to remember. But it's a great resource for us to, to battle on our knees with our brothers and sisters who we may never meet until we come face to face with the Savior. But the second thing, I want to just, I want to ask you a question and then I'm going to close in prayer. I want each of us to ask this question. We may not live in, in a place where we currently fear for our lives because of our faith, but, but ask yourself this question. Am I willing to suffer for Jesus' sake? Am I willing to endure anything in obedience to my Lord and King? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are faithful to us. We thank you that you are the God who redeems, that you are the God who reconciles. We thank you that though this life is full of trouble, and for some of our dear brothers and sisters around the world, intense persecution and suffering for righteousness, that this world and, and this age is not the end of the story. We thank you that because of Christ, because of his life, his sacrifice on the cross in our place, his death, his resurrection, that we can face the future without fear, knowing that you will raise us with him, that you have already raised us with him, that eternal life is ours. We already hold on to it if our faith is in your son. God, I, I pray that you would help us to remember our, our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, that we would commit to pray for them, that we would not forget about them and the difficulties that they face. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to really wrestle in our hearts with that question of, are we willing to suffer for you? I mean, how deep is our devotion to you? Your devotion to us is so great that you sent your very son to live to take on human flesh, to face all of the difficulties of life that we face, to remain sinless, and then to die in our place, the death that we deserved. And you raised him to life. We thank you for that. Lord, would you cultivate in us greater faith, greater dependence upon you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.